Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. And if you guys would just bow your heads with me once more. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity. Um, We get every week to take uh, a bit of our time from our busy schedules, from our buzzing phones, um, from our football scores and our calendars, and we get to submit ourselves um, to looking at, um, dissecting, digesting, and applying through the power of the Holy Spirit your word to our lives. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us in your word, um, both in the story it pre- uh, presents as true of a God who saves his people through his son, but also in the mere privilege we have of having your word today. And we pray this, we submit our time and our hearts to you, in your name, amen. So, uh, Last week, uh, we started a new series that we'll be in for, uh, not sure if someone caught me this last week where I subtly snuck in that it would be at least a couple years, and that's probably true, and so get cozy um, for this, in the book of Luke. And last week, we looked at uh, Luke's introduction, and we learned some things. We learned who Luke was. He was a historian who accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. We learned who Luke was writing to. He was writing to Theophilus. This Christian man, this Greek Christian man, and we learned why Luke was writing. He was writing that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the word of the gospel that he had been taught. And today we have concluded Luke's introduction and we're beginning the story of good news that Luke wants you to have certainty regarding. We're beginning the story, which is the center of why he's writing to us. And what lay before us actually in Luke 1 verses 5 through 25, if you have your Bibles in front of you, is the story of the announcement of the first gospel in Luke's book. Luke in chapter 1 verse 19, uh, the angel Gabriel declares to Zechariah and he says this, he says, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And as we touched on last week, the Greek of that text would literally read, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to gospel to you, to declare good news. It's that verb, the angel came and here we have in the book of Luke, the first time of gospeling, of proclaiming good news. And of the four gospel accounts in scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's only Luke's account which includes this story that we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at. December, the beginning of December is historically when the church celebrates a season of Advent, and that's where we stop and we pause and we consider kind of the anxious longing we have for God to move and his answer uh, to that promise by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And today, in Luke chapter 1, we're going to start Advent a little bit early because we're going to see how to wait for and how to wait in light of God's promises fulfilled. And this is what we're gonna see this morning. The simple point is that we're gonna see the trial and privilege of waiting on a God who remembers. Just as it might sound there, we're gonna look at one part of a seeming series of trials God's people were facing, but also the immense privilege God's people had of serving and waiting on a God who would not forget and who begins to move again in this text. 
So with that said, I'm going to read for us our passage once more, Luke 1, verses 5 through 12. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. So I'm sure many of you have had to write a paper in a history class at some point. Many more of you maybe perhaps have written a short story, and you realize when you sit down to do that, that one of the most important decisions you will ever make is where your story starts. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Long ago in a galaxy Far, far away, once upon a time. And it's therefore with a similar importance and significance that we want to closely root ourselves in the story of the good news, the gospel, by coming and looking closely at the beginning of the gospel according to Luke. Luke doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus or the announcement to the Virgin Mary. But he, in an attempt to lay out what we saw last week, is an orderly account. He reaches back further to the prophecy and the birth of John the Baptist. And we're going to split um, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, into two weeks. And you'll notice that today, it seems our passage stops before it actually gets good. Zechariah is fearful. He's gripped with fear. The angel is about to talk. Tune in next week. We'll get back to that. Next week, we're going to hear the content of this wonderful message that the angel Gabriel is going to declare to Zechariah. But this week, we're not going to focus on the content of the gospel. This week, we're going to focus on the context of the gospel. That is the world, the people, and the lives into which this gospel pronunciation has come. And this is important for us to understand in seeing the events of our own world Because when we look at the story of Luke's world, we are preparing ourselves for the receipt of and the belief in the gospel in our own context. The gospel doesn't come to us as nice, neat, blank pieces of paper. The gospel comes to real people in real periods with real problems, and I promise that it's good for you in whatever it is you're going through as well. If you're a believer in here today, I imagine there have been times of your life where you look at the events and you say, what in the world is God doing? Could he be making anything out of the mess or the wounds or the silence that appears to be before you? Maybe perhaps you're in here and you're not a Christian. And what actually keeps you from coming to this God King is that you also have the news. You have social media. You can look out into the world and you see this brokenness, you see these wounds, you see these infightings, you see this tension, you see this calamity, and you say, all of this randomness and conflict 
is certainly proof, if I've ever seen any, that there can be no order in this. That this does not amount to a good God who is sovereignly guiding history as he sees fit. But our story today shows us then when it, that when it seems God might have forgotten, when it seems the plan of God has faded away into nothing, when it seems that politicians and power brokers of man are our only hope, that it's then that God shows up. What might seem like God's forgetfulness to us is often God's master plan of faithfulness towards us. And the context in which Luke's gospel comes is a context of trials and unrest. And this is our first point today. We're going to look at the trials in this text. Luke's gospel story begins in a world on edge. And in these first 10 verses, we see three distinct places of trial. We're going to look at political unrest, personal unrest, and providential or prophetic unrest. We see the nature of this political unrest, which is our first trial, in the first part of verse 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. When we read this, perhaps we don't even bat an eye at this context marker. But for the readers in Luke's day, it would have read to them as this might sound to us. In the days of Stalin, ruler of Eastern Europe. It seemed out of place. It seemed ominous. It seemed not good. And this Herod, who has gone down in history as Herod the Great, had nothing great about him. He was not kingly. He was not kind-hearted. He was not benevolent. He was a difficult king brought about in a series of political deception. And what's interesting is we have today a similar longing for a good ruler as they did back then. That's because our political longings that seem to be pervasive across any culture at any time is actually something that God has woven into our hearts. We were made to be ruled by a good and kind ruler. We were made to find hope and to long for that. This ultimately and finally will be through Jesus as our forever king. When every tongue confess, uh, where every tongue, knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But in different periods, in different ways, God put men, imperfect men, as placeholders to point us towards the king of kings. And part of God's promise to Israel, which is the people we encounter here, is that a king would come from their line. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised that a forever good king would sit on Israel's throne But as the kings of Israel fell into sin and the kingdom into disrepair, the hope of Israel politically, the hope it had in its leader, became increasingly frustrated. Even as God brought Israel out of discipline in Babylon and returned them to the promised land and rebuilt the temple, this line of kings was fuzzy at best. The people still longed, were still anxious, were still frustrated with what was given to them. And when they came back, there was a king in Israel, but it wasn't the kind of king they hoped. And there was peace, it was fine, but a few decades later, and they were conquered by another foreign nation. And it just so happened that 
out of this frustration where they're prohibited to worship the Lord and prohibited to practice Judaism, that there was a Jewish uprising, that the Maccabean revolution happened and they established through bloodshed this Jewish state with a Jewish king. And that lasted only a few short years till 63 BC when the Roman general Pompey rode into Jerusalem and established an age of Roman oppression over the entire Palestinian area. It was in this context that Herod's family now comes onto the scene. Herod's father was not fully Jewish, was kind of like a half caste of, of Jew, wasn't pure bloodline, and he loved Rome. And as he began to support Rome and their interests in Judea, he rose in popularity, he rose in prestige and, pre and position inside of the Roman Empire. And it was when the infamous Mark Anthony rode back into Jerusalem to crush another uprising that Anthony established Herod as the client king over all Judea. Herod's rise to the throne over Israel was not a storybook rise, but it's the entirely wrong king coming to the throne in the wrong circumstance. Not only was Herod not fully Jewish, but he cared only for Israel to the degree that it elevated his own standing and power and wealth in the eyes of Rome. Upon becoming king of the area, he immediately executed a group of Jewish nationalists and he killed most of his own family because he was paranoid that they were going to take his throne from him. Further, readers of the Gospel of Matthew see that this Herod, king of Israel, was actively opposed to God's promised king. When it was announced that a king was born, he didn't say, this is the hope of Israel. Instead, he set his hand as the king of Israel to put to death all Jewish boys under the age of two to preserve his throne. So for a people who were waiting for the promised kingdom of God, this Herod, king of Judea, was nothing more than a puppet king and a false hope. You can imagine what's going through the political psyche of the average Jew at that time. Where is God's king? Is this as good as it gets? Is this the kingdom that God brought us out of Egypt into the promised land in order to inherit? Did God forget about his promise? But in contrast to the wickedness of Herod, we see some good people in this text. We're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but it's here we encounter personal unrest. Read with me once more verses five through seven. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." And so as Israel throughout its history was kind of handed over from pagan empire to pagan empire, there was this great secularization amongst God's people where most of them abandoned the worship of Yahweh and were incorporated 
into a pagan lifestyle. They adopted Greek customs. They worshiped Greek gods. They took Greek names. Or even worse, they tried to synthesize the worship of Yahweh and the worship of all the gods of the Greek pantheon. But God had promised in the Old Testament that no matter how hard things would get in Israel, no matter how oppressive the foreign government, no matter how visible and attractive the foreign worship, that God would always preserve a remnant. That is, when it seemed everyone was leaving faith and distrusting the promises of God, that God would hold by the power of that promise, he would hold the people who believed, who trusted the Lord, who relied on him to keep his promise to his people. And here we have Zechariah, a priest, and Elizabeth. Both of them were part of this holy remnant. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is where we need a little bit of a preface, because they're righteous, And that's a good thing. It's something the New Testament writers picked up. But their righteousness here does not mean that these two people found themselves without the need of the gospel, which is about to be proclaimed to them. When Luke here calls them righteous before God, it wasn't that they were sinless before God. But instead, they were made righteous by entrusting themselves to the promise of God. And that's how anyone becomes righteous. We don't become righteous by ourselves becoming sinless. We can't do that. But sinful people become righteous when they put themselves in the promise of a God who accepts sinful people by his promise. In other words, these people were blameless according to the law. In regards to God's promise that he gave his people in the commandments and statutes, these two people kept them faithfully in a world where everyone was failing to trust in God's promise to save those who obeyed him, these two people obeyed. They clung to it. And it wasn't this empty obedience. It was heartfelt, eager anticipation that regardless of what is going on on the outside, if they believe in God and they hide themselves in his rule, that God will care for them. God will deliver them. Here were the good guys. Our souls, in contrast to Herod, rejoice at Zechariah and Elizabeth. But there's a problem, isn't there? They have no child. And Luke expresses this in kind of like this times two dilemma when he says Elizabeth was barren and both of them were advanced in age. In other words, there's not much hope for this couple to ever conceive And if perhaps you've struggled with barrenness or childlessness or nor someone who has, you know the crushing crushing frustration and hopelessness this might cause. And as hard as it is for us today, it was actually harder back then. Because even though they ought to be able to just look back in God's scriptures and see that God was consistently using barren women to bless God's people and to further his promise. It was culturally thought in that day that barrenness was a sign of God's displeasure. That sure, Zachariah and Elizabeth look like the goody two-shoes who are always going to the temple, but there's gotta be some skeletons in those closets. 
Because if they were living right with God, they'd be blessed by God. They would have abundant kids, abundant wealth. Sounds a lot like the false prosperity gospel that is in our world today. And maybe that's been you, where there's been times in your life where you look out at the seeming silence of God or the absence of things you hope in and you say, is there something wrong with me? Have I failed God? Is he displeased with me? And I imagine for many of us, the only thing worse than looking at our lives and thinking that God isn't working is looking at our affliction, our sorrow, and our wounds, and because of that, thinking that God wouldn't work in our life, wouldn't answer us, wouldn't deliver us. But that's not how this story ends. Yet we can imagine the angst, perhaps the confusion that Zachariah and Elizabeth feel. They were scorned by others. You can imagine they feel forgotten by God. And to make things worse, there are some innate levels of irony built into their names. In Hebrew, the name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Elizabeth means God's promise. That would be a bit of an existential crisis, wouldn't it? (laughs) Where our very names promote what seems to be the opposite of our realities. You can imagine that around their dinner table, they weep with each other and say, does God remember? Does God keep his promise? Here we are obeying, Zechariah. We are obeying and no one else is. We are being faithful when no one else is faithful. And what's our reward for all of this? Barrenness? Childlessness? Reproach? On top of this political unrest and this personal unrest, there's an idea of providential unrest or perhaps prophetic unrest. And that is in the providence and power of God, something unique was happening in the lives of God's people. Read with me again, Luke chapter one, verses eight through 10. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, and when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. So here we see God's people, Israel, gathering in Jerusalem, and Zechariah as a priest, is with the multitude of people that we see in verse 10, continuing to do what God has called them to do in relationship to the temple. It's been hundreds of years since the temple was rebuilt under Zerubbabel. Herod is building this robust temple as a fame to his own name and to please the Jews who he's continually oppressing. And in the midst of all of this, God's faithful people are continuing to labor in it. Despite the waning interest in Yahweh among God's people, despite the puppet king, despite the Roman occupation, despite the personal problems, people are still doing the same things for hundreds of years and seemingly nothing is changing. On top of all this ritual and all this gathering and all this praying, God
stopped speaking. Was that not the most awkward 20 seconds of your life? There would be people on the podcast like, what in the world? You see, it was confusing. There's silence all the time in our world. But it was confusing because I was talking. And for a mere 20 seconds, I stopped. For 400 years, the mouth of God's prophets were stilled. 400 years of no prophecy, no oracle, no miracle, just 400 years of political unrest, silence, and continued service of a God who claimed to care for them, but seemed to no longer be speaking to them. More than that, where the prophets ended was on a pretty good note. The last prophecy given in the Old Testament comes from Malachi chapter four. This is what it says. For behold, the day of God is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. Can you imagine sitting under Herod's rule and thinking of that prophecy? Like, oh my goodness, Herod the Great is gonna get his just desserts. God is going to liberate us from the unrighteous rulers. The day is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So that's what Elizabeth and Zechariah are remembering. (laughs) Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree, decree of utter destruction." What is the purpose of this? It's to see that where God stopped, where the syllables became silent, was on the cliffhanger of all cliffhangers, that a great and awesome day was about to happen. God was going to restore righteousness and punish the wicked. We were to come out of the gate like a young calf set free from his chute, jubilantly and joyously, and it seemed so imminent, and then nothing silence. Have you ever looked out at the events of our world and felt the same? Have you ever looked into the trials of your own life and thought, where is God? Have you ever finished praying or reading your Bible and thought, why Aren't you saying anything? 400 years, hundreds of generations, people did the same things, saw the same problems, read the same headlines, and just figured out how to make life work. 
And part of what Luke is showing us in this kind of laborious description in verse eight is the mundane nature, the ordinary nature of what's going on in Luke's day. It did not appear that Zechariah was a high priest. He was an ordinary priest. Didn't even live in Jerusalem. We see that from where they go home towards after this. And it just so happened, Zechariah wasn't this like stellar priest. We're like, if we could just get Zechariah to come burn some of that incense, we're gonna be good up in here. He was randomly selected by the casting of lots to go into the holy place of the temple and to burn some potpourri. And while that sounds like a unique and was privileged to get to go, it's what priests long for, the Old Testament prescribed that this incense was to be burned twice daily. Zechariah wasn't coming as this superstar priest to the once annual day of atonement where God worked in mighty ways. Here was this nobody with a barren wife coming to a temple to burn something that gets burned twice every day. And what's interesting is despite God's silence, despite the ordinary mundane nature of everything going on, people still gathered to pray. As Zachariah went to burn fragrant incense before a God who seemingly left the building, the whole multitude was in the courtyard praying. I have a question for you today. And that's if you were one who in this day felt the lonely anxiety, frustration, or anger. Or maybe today you sit before God with those similar emotions. What would you pray? What would you be asking God to do? In the face of everything seemingly going wrong, and God doing nothing. What do you think his answer would be? Where would you find hope? But it's amidst all of this ordinary silence. It's actually the Greek almost reads in verse eight, and it just so happened. Amidst all of this silence, it just so happened that during the days of Herod, the puppet king of Judea, a lowly village priest with a barren old wife was randomly selected to enter the temple of the Lord. And it just so happened that on this day, this priest's name was the Lord remembers. And on that day, the veil which cloaked the God of Israel the veil of silence that stood for 400 years was about to be lifted in the midst of what seemed like forgetfulness. God was working in faithfulness. And here we see the privilege of waiting on a God who remembers. We will wait as God's people and that will present a trial but the privilege of worshiping this God is it's always better to wait with his promises than apart from it. We need to be reminded of things daily. We often forget what we're asked. We forget what we've been told to do or what needs to be done. 
But the God of Scripture needs no such prompt, which means that when it's time for God in his divine pleasure to act, God does not to be re- need to be rousted from his stupor in order to act. When God desires to act, when it is fitting to act, when it is best for his people to act, when it is his good pleasure to act, God acts. And read with me God's action in verses 8 through 12. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of priesthood, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And there appeared to him, that's in the temple while burning incense, the angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. In a puppet kingdom, in an age of unprecedented silence, to an old man with a barren wife of a restless people, God showed up. And how he did it was absolutely astounding. You see, we think that, and we sing songs sometimes of like, we see God and we run to him like he's this giant care bear. (laughs) But right here, when God shows up, it strikes us to our core. Something unique is happening. And this is even an angel sent by the Lord. It is not God himself. And this becomes all the more shocking. Fear grips him. It's actually this word that Luke uses in the parable of the prodigal son when the father throws his arms around the son that has come back. That's what fear does to Zechariah in this text. And part of this is because when he took the incense into the temple to burn this and it produced smoke and smells that were honoring to God and helped remind the people, he walked into the holy place, past the table of the presence and the golden lampstands. And at the end of this kind of corridor, probably about the size of what our foyer is out there, we don't need to start calling it the holy place yet. Um, there, There was, at the end, the altar of incense. And behind the altar of incense was this curtain. And behind that curtain was the holy of holies, It was where God's presence historically dwelt. And Zechariah knew probably two things about what lay beyond that. Two things about the Holy of Holies. First, he knew that in the Old Testament, when God's righteous consuming fire dwelt in there, that it was a delightful and dangerous place. The kind of like when you reach into a hot oven to grab a pan, you know if you're not careful, you will get burned. Why? Because it's hot. And we go before a God who is a consuming fire, righteous and holy. It is of his nature to burn things which are not also righteous and holy. And there are stories in the Old Testament of people going before God in wrong and unworthy ways into his presence and falling dead because God's holy glory consumed them. He knew something unique was back there. But we also know that Luke told us Zechariah was an old geezer. He'd been around for a while. He perhaps knew or had heard of what happened some 50 years ago when Pompey marched into Jerusalem. He got to Jerusalem, of which the power center was the temple, maybe out of defiance, maybe out of curiosity. He went behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And you know what happened? 
nothing. There's no Indiana Jones face melting. There's no earthquake and thunder and lightning. A pagan, uh, a pagan general marched in, looked around, said, that's a lot of gold, and then marched back out. Can you imagine the weird tension that you might have if you were a priest serving before that curtain of saying like, I know there's supposed to be something wild in there, but it kind of seems that God forgot to come home. Which is why when Luke says that he was burning his incense and to the right of the altar, an angel of the Lord appeared, that we understand how stunning this is. Because it would have seemed as if this angel came out from the curtain. For 400 years, the only thing that ever came out was that high priest that but once a year who went in. But here, God moved. Silence was broken. And God began to speak again. There's a wonderful praise, or phrase C.S. Lewis uses that communicates hope to the hopeless people in Narnia when he says, Aslan is on the move. And here as the angel of Yahweh appeared, God was on the move. The God who had been seemingly silent but working throughout all history had now turned on the surround sound. He was beginning to be noticed. A new message was being heralded, just as it happened in Egypt where God's people cried out for 400 years, the Lord remembered and began to act. You see, the gospel is the supernatural story of God remembering his people and acting in miraculous ways. The message of this gospel, the new, or, or the, the, the promise fulfilled of the Old Testament didn't come about on the mouth of another human prophet. It came from the, the mouth of an angel itself to proclaim to the world that God is keeping his promise. That for those who sit in the land of darkness, as we'll see in a few weeks, light was finally coming. That this is not something new. God didn't get bored and decide to do something. This was God's long-awaited plan, and now it was happening. The message which Luke wanted to encourage Theophilus with, the message Luke wants you to have certainty regarding, is the message of a God who promised his people long ago and who is now acting and has acted in Jesus to save all those who feel forgotten. When we encounter the gospel, we encounter the hope that God remembers. When Zechariah and Elizabeth served, they served in light of promises made. We, this side of the cross, have the privilege of serving in light of promises kept. And we're gonna look at that promise next week where Malachi chapter four comes to the foreground in flaming fire of fulfillment that the Elijah of God has come to proclaim the way of Jesus, to make crooked paths straight, that Jesus would come 
as God's presence here on earth, as God with us, the King who gives us new life and dwells with us by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want good news, if it feels you've been waiting your whole life for something that never seems to come, come here to the message of Jesus. The way God answers prayers for the wants and worries in your life is through the angelic message that salvation has come in Jesus Christ. But this is why we need to understand the context of Luke. Because for those of us who hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not done waiting, are we? It was 400 years of silence that led up to the first chapter of Luke. We're 2,000 plus years removed from the last chapter of Luke. And the apostle Peter describes this waiting in 2 Peter 2, verses 3, 10 through 13, where they were waiting for Christ to come for the first time. Now, those who are saved by grace wait for Christ to come a second time. But the day of the Lord, he's picking up on Malachi's language, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the whole heavens will be set on fire? Do you hear Malachi in here? And dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens in a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus has come. Jesus is coming again. And now we find ourselves in a period where we might have all the emotions of the Israelites in Luke chapter one, of apathy, of empty worship, of anxiety and frustration. But there's a key difference here. We've seen the end of the story. We know how Jesus worked to assure us of God's promise to save. We know that God didn't come to dwell in his temple. He came to dwell in his son, his son who died for sinners so that one day those who hope in him will be rid of all of the trials that pain us. Our job then right now, if you are a believer who comes to Jesus in faith, is to wait well. In a world of trials, aren't our hearts in this waiting, prone to frustration, of doing things wondering if God still is working or if now we just get to live as we ought and maybe someday God will work again. But here in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, we see two points of application in closing which help us live in light of Jesus' second coming. We saw that they both walked blamelessly before God and that Zechariah served before God. And so first, we, get, we have the privilege of walking with Jesus in righteousness. Because God remembers, we have the privilege of walking in righteousness. Zechariah and Elizabeth had every reason in their mind, in their flesh, to walk away from obeying God. It seemed that God didn't care, that God had forgotten them, and despite their best efforts, that they had some sort of sin that God was punishing them for. But they chose to continue to obey God, and it was counted to them as righteousness. We who live this side of the cross, who come to faith in Jesus, have something better than the righteousness of the law. We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. 
That means that we await the coming of God's kingdom. We get to wait clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, of what he has done, which means we get to walk with him when we feel lonely. We get to lean on him when we feel weak. And when it seems that God is distant, we look and we see his smile towards us in Jesus Christ. We walk in two ways. We walk knowing first that it's only through Jesus that we are blameless before God, that we cling to Christ who is our life, knowing that his blood has cleansed us and made us righteous. But secondly, as Peter reminded us, we strive to live as people walking in holiness. And what a privilege that when we are saved by Jesus, he fills us with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we get to obey. We get to pursue holiness. We get to become more and more like Jesus. So while we wait, we walk with Jesus in righteousness. But secondly, well, first, here, I guess I'll give you some Bible to back this up. Philippians 2, verses 14 through 16 says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless, innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain, or labor in vain. So let us run towards holiness as lights filled with the righteousness of Christ. But secondly, we have the privilege of trusting in God's promised means. This is something that's really profound for us. We see that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God, but Zechariah was also serving in verse eight before God. As we wait, we have both this righteous hope, but we also have this righteous action and one thing we see in this story is that despite the seeming silence and mundane nature of life, Zechariah and those who prayed still went to the places God told them to go in hopes that God would show up. Even though the temple may have seemed like an empty home of a careless God, they went. And it was in these places that God promised to work that God finally worked. And how much so in our life when we feel frustrated and God feels distance from us, the first places that go are the places that God promises to work. When we feel alone, when we feel isolated, when we feel frustrated, don't we throw away our Bible reading and we stop praying and we start gathering in church because we say, it doesn't matter. God's not doing anything here. And those are places that God has promised to work. And what we see in the gospel is that God keeps his promise. It's never apart from God's promised means that he begins to work. God might not choose to open the waters of refreshment in your morning devotional time like you want him to. But to remove yourself from the spout is to remove yourself from the hope of ever finding water. God keeps his promise in this age of waiting of filling us with his spirit, of speaking to us in his word, and of comforting us in his gathered body. It might not look like what you want it to look like. It might not happen in the way in which you want it to happen, but God has promised to those who stay faithful to bless you, to meet you there, and to remind you of his goodness to move and to act. Consider Paul's words once more in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 18. To those who wait, 
we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So let us together not lose heart as we wait, for we have seen the message of salvation. Let us encourage one another that we serve a God who moves, a God who speaks, and a God who has done all he promised to do in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you moved. We thank you that even though it might seem that we are in an age of silence, we are in the most privileged position of your redemptive history. For we have your word and your church which bear witness to the gospel. But more importantly, Lord, for those who come to you in faith, we have the sealed promise of the Holy Spirit in us who cries, Abba, Father, who moves our hearts to holy hope and our hands to holy work. Lord, we thank you that the gospel doesn't come to perfect people in perfect places. But it comes into our trials and is big enough for them. In fact, it might so be that God has designed to be more glorified through them. So we pray, Lord, that we embrace the trial and the privilege of worshiping you as we remember together the God who speaks. We pray this in your name. Amen.